Galatians, as we press forward in our verse-by-verse exposition of Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, we come today to the final paragraph of chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3. I had intended on preaching verses 27 through 29, but we will only have time for verse number 27 today. Happy the people who have a self-conscious pastor and is considerate of their time. And uh, we could just go ahead and merge both morning and evening worship services into one long protracted service, but I will not test your faith and patience to that degree yet. Galatians chapter 3, this and next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we'll consider verses 27 through 29, which I will read in your hearing. Galatians 3, verse number 27. Paul writes, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. Amen. Story is told of the preacher who went to pastor a particular church. And this preacher was fond of preaching on water baptism as his subject. I guess he thought that it was the best subject for him to preach. He was most skilled. He estimated himself to be a preacher about water baptism. And so Sunday after Sunday, he was like a one-trick pony. He kept going back to a sermon about baptism every single week, preaching about baptism. And the people, as you could expect, began to grow a little weary with hearing the same kind of a sermon on baptism every Sunday. But he just kept right on persisting. So in desperation, the deacons got together and they came up with a plan. And they asked him to allow them to choose his next sermon text for him, to which he agreed. And they chose Genesis 1 verse 1, first verse in the Bible. And they reasoned among themselves, now let's see him get a sermon on baptism out of that verse. And so he got up to preach and he announced the agreed upon text, Genesis 1.1. He read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he paused. He said, now the earth is two-thirds water. Therefore, my subject today is water baptism. Well, unlike that guy, it occurred to me this week that in the 11-year history of our church, I have never preached a sermon exclusively on the doctrine and subject of baptism, which leads me to why I wanted to do it today. Now, we know, obviously, that this passage is not explicitly about water baptism exclusively, but one can draw, and I aim to draw, out inferences from these verses on how the doctrine of baptism is unfolded in all of the Bible. Though it is not explicitly about water baptism, the concept, theme, and ideas of baptism are resident textually in this passage. In verse number 27, of course, Paul writes, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I came across a quote from a Christian theology textbook this week that makes this observation. Over the centuries, Christians have debated about what baptism accomplishes, who should be baptized, 
and how much water should be used when baptism is administered. Now, I had formed this outline, believe it or not, before I read that quote, but I think it's a good framework and template to line out what I want to argue to you this and next Lord's Day regarding baptism, and that is the mode of baptism today, the recipient's and the symbolism of baptism next week. Verse number 27 allows us to explore what I would call the mode of baptism. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The mode of baptism is what I want you to think about particularly today. Now when I say mode, I mean how baptism is appropriately biblically administered and as most of you are probably aware if you've been around church for any amount of time there are basically when it comes to modes of baptism two potential ways that the waters can be applied what is on the one hand commonly called immersion and what is on the other hand commonly called effusion now, if those terms are foreign to you, there's a simple concept by which you can understand them. In immersion, a person is applied to the water. In effusion, the water is applied to the person. In immersion, the candidate of baptism is dumped. In effusion, the candidate for baptism is sprinkled. One Baptist pastor I heard about complain once that it takes 90 gallons of water to baptize a Christian and nine drops of water to keep him home from church. The second part of that might be true across the board, Baptists and Presbyterians. Nine drops of water, it's raining, I can't come to church today. But the first part of that quote isn't because it does not take 90 gallons of water to baptize anybody. Somebody I was joking with one time said to me that baptism is like a donut. He was a Baptist friend. He said it's like a donut. It's best whenever it's dunked. And I said back to him, I like mine with sprinkles, actually. <laughs> Not on my donuts, really. I like donuts without sprinkles. But when it comes to baptism, I prefer sprinkling over dunking. Our conversation as Presbyterians always leads to why we effuse and why effusion is more biblical than immersion. Now, at this point, I feel like I need probably to make a caveat because maybe in your mind you're asking, well, if I was dunked, does that mean my baptism was valid? Yes, it does. Immersion does not invalidate one's baptism. You're looking and listening to one who was baptized as a Baptist by immersion. And it's not necessarily the mode, immersion or effusion, that validates or invalidates one's baptism. So it is not my aim to contend in this sermon that immersion is not a valid baptism. But I do contend that immersion only is not the only valid mode of baptism. I'll go a step further. Though I was immersed as a Baptist, I am convinced that the more biblical practice is effusion, pouring or sprinkling. And maybe you're a Baptist today, still. 
And maybe you believe that immersion is the proper mode of baptism. Well, by God's grace, hopefully, we'll change your mind today. And if we don't, we can still be friends. One common argument from those who disagree with our position regarding the mode of baptism is the meaning of the word. I was taught this in my Baptist Bible college, that immersion ought to be practiced, and immersion is the only valid biblical way to baptize somebody because, if nothing else, of the um, exegetical meaning of the Greek word baptizo. It's interesting that baptize is one of these words that there is no real English equivalent to. So the translators of the New Testament, when they came across baptizo, just anglicized it a little bit and said, baptize. It's a Greek word. And often the argument from an immersionist goes something like this. Baptizo means to dunk or to make fully wet. Therefore, unless you have been dunked, you have not been baptizo. That's sort of the basic contention. To which there are two replies that the Reformed might give as rejoinders. The first is that it is demonstrably false. That argument is demonstrably false. Baptizo, though at times can and does in the New Testament refer to dunking, it doesn't always refer exclusively to dunking. Jesus referred one time to the Pharisees in a scathing criticism about how pedantic they were, about their ritualistic hand washings and the washings of their dining couches and tables and furniture and whatnot. And the word that Jesus uses there for washing of their hands and washing of their tables and washing of their couches is the word baptizo. And it is far more likely, you wash your hands, don't you, that you don't wash your hands by dunking them under water, but applying water to your hands. And certainly they didn't wash their couches by picking up those couches and throwing them in a pool, but rather they would apply the washing, the baptizo waters to their couches. The water was applied to the object, not the object to the water. In that case, baptizo does not mean to dunk, but it means to sprinkle. Moreover, in Daniel 4... In what is called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, you remember Nebuchadnezzar is predicted to um, not many days hence lose his mind. And he is going to go out in the field and he's going to act like a wild animal. And he's going to live out there and he is going to be wet with the dew of heaven. And the word there by the translators of the Septuagint into the Greek is a form of the verb to be baptized. Nebuchadnezzar was baptized with the dew of heaven. Now, I've seen people get dunked underwater and it be a valid baptism, but I ain't never seen anybody get dunked in dew. <laughs> dew settles down on top of a person. And there, the word is baptized. So you see, in the concept of the translators and Greek scholars, both of Old and New Testament, the meaning of the word baptizo can, but does not, demonstrably so, does not always exclusively refer to someone being dunked underwater. Sometimes it refers to the water being applied to them. That's one argument to the baptizo argument. Another rejoinder that the Reformed give is, second, 
even if and when baptizo does refer to immersing or dunking something underwater, that should not invalidate sprinkling as a proper mode. Let me use an analogy. The other sacrament of the church, there are two, of course, instituted by Jesus Christ, given to his church that they are to practice until he comes. One is baptism. The other is the Lord's Supper. And we adapt that phrase, the Lord's Supper. Sometimes it's called Eucharist, to give thanks to the Lord. We give thanks as we receive a meal. Sometimes it's called the Lord's Supper because that is also language adopted straight from the language of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. He calls the Lord's Supper the Supper of the Lord. And what's interesting for our subject Touching on it at this point is that the word supper that Paul employs in the Greek is the term dapnon. Dapnon. And I point that out because literally translated, dapnon means a feast or a banquet, a, a table full of food. So if we can only baptize by dunking, then we can only celebrate the Lord's Supper by feasting. If baptizo means that we must dunk a person underwater, then dapnon means that we must serve a full table, a banquet feast, in order to adequately administer the Lord's Supper. But nearly every Christian denomination recognizes that the Lord's Supper isn't about how much bread and wine is used in the celebration of it, but that bread and wine is used in the celebration of it. And in the same way, we might say it is proper to recognize that baptism isn't validated or invalidated by how much water is used, but that water is used. Baptism is predicated then on the promises attached to the water, not the amount or volume of the water. Another common objection, you see why I just chose to stop at verse number 27, by the way, this morning. Got hung up on the mode. But another common objection to sprinkling might be that the imagery, I've heard this one, I've used this one in my Baptist past, that the imagery associated in the New Testament with baptism is that of burial. Burial. When I got baptized, the pastor uttered this formula over me and probably you if you were baptized as a Baptist. Buried with him in the likeness of his death. Raised up to walk in newness of life. That incidentally is not wrong because it's right out of the Bible. Romans 6 associates our baptism with being buried. But I would ask at this point, whose burial? Buried with whom in the likeness of whose death? It is Christ's death and Christ's burial that our baptism identifies ourselves with. And our Christ was not buried the way we bury. You know, we live in the West and we live a long way away and a long time removed from the way they would bury in the ancient Middle East. But we bury below ground. Jesus was not buried below the ground. Jesus was not buried below the dirt. He was buried on a rock table, wasn't he? In a hollowed out tomb in a cave. 
Moreover, though the imagery of burial is used, there's also another image that is associated with our baptism, and it is the one right here in our text this morning in verse number 27. Baptism pictures not only being buried with Christ, but in another way, Paul points out baptism also pictures putting on Christ. Notice verse number 27 again. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, here it is, have put on Christ. This picture's pulling a cloak or a robe over one's head. That is putting on clothes or changing one's clothes. It pictures a change of lifestyle or a change of nature or a change of life, a, a new perspective, a new person you are. Your baptism images and symbolizes putting on something new. Putting on something new. And you and I both know that the clothing is applied to you not you to the clothing. And so the water in baptism as well. And there's just a little more to consider as I try to press this point. Consider with me the language of that which baptism pictures. Namely, baptism namely pictures two things. Your baptism pictures, number one, being cleansed, does it not? Specifically, cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sins when we confess them. Baptism pictures being cleansed as water washes a body, so the blood of Jesus washes a soul white as snow. Baptism pictures cleansing with the blood of Jesus Christ. And secondly, baptism pictures reception of the Holy Spirit. Not by works of righteousness but with, that we have done, but by, but by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Cleansing with the blood of Jesus and reception of the Holy Spirit are both pictured in the practice of baptism. And what saith the scriptures, dear ones, about those two events, the cleansing of the blood of Jesus and the reception of the Holy Spirit upon those who believe. Of Jesus, Isaiah the prophet said, didn't he, that when he came in his death, being marred and gory beyond human semblance or recognition, that in that propitiatory, substitutionary, sacrificial, propitiating, glorious death on the cross, he will sprinkle many nations. He would sprinkle many nations. Ezekiel picks up on Isianic language when he says that in the new covenant, those who receive the promises of the Messiah will be sprinkled with clean water. Peter the apostle picking up on language from Exodus 34 when Moses took the hyssop bush and the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkled all the people and called them to covenant fidelity. Peter says, you now, New Testament believers, elect exiles sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit at Jesus' own baptism the Holy Spirit did in reality what the water of Jesus' baptism did symbolically it descended upon him like a dove and that's why the Holy Spirit 
is spoken of in the New Testament as being poured out upon the church. Poured over, poured out, poured down upon the head of any and all who believe. What does baptism symbolize? The blood of Jesus. What does the Bible say about the application of the blood of Jesus? We're sprinkled. What does baptism symbolize? The application of the Holy Spirit to the one who believes. What does the Bible say about the application of the Holy Spirit? He's poured out and he descends upon us. And therefore, I would argue, so should the water. So should the water. One other rejoinder or possible objection I need to answer. I know sometimes you preach to the heart, but sometimes you got to preach to the mind because Christianity is a thinking religion and you need to know what you believe and why you believe it. And you need to have good answers for why you believe what you believe. So once you encounter this argument, you'll have an answer. The argument goes something like this. Everybody in the Bible that you read about being baptized was immersed. You say, how do you know that? Because oftentimes I didn't discover until I started thinking more carefully about it. That's actually an assumption I was bringing to the Bible, not something I read out of the Bible. I assumed before that when I read baptism, it just means they got dumped. But I would challenge you to find one place in your Bible where it says anybody was dumped by baptism. Now, there is one, I think, reasonably good argument to indicate that perhaps some were dunked and again I'm not I'm not arguing that some could not have been dunked and the argument is that when somebody gets baptized they're spoken of at least on some occasions as going down into the water and then coming up back out of the water which indicates they were at least waist deep but notice in those passages where one goes down into the water and comes back up out of the water not only is the one baptized going down into the water the baptizer is going down into the water as well connoting that the most logical and reasonable expectation is that they both went down into the water and the water was then applied to the candidate for baptism as they came back up out of the water logistically this makes far more logical sense when you consider the mass baptism that you discover in New Testament times regarding the thousands at the day of Pentecost regarding the hundreds if not thousands of ones that John the baptizer baptized the physical toll on one's body for say 12 apostles or one John the Baptist to baptize people by dunking by himself was more than could be done by one person physically and so this is where we arrive at a suggestion leading us to the mode of baptism the mode of baptism, effusion or immersion, which is more biblical, which is more consistent with the language and the symbolism employed by scripture in baptism. And so today, as we close, I want you today and next week, Lord willing, to be thinking about baptism. To be thinking about baptism. I don't know if you came to church today expecting to hear that application for you, but I want you to be thinking about baptism. And therefore, I want you, no matter where you are in your walk with the Lord, or if you have never begun walking with the Lord, if you've never been converted, I want you to ask yourself a few questions about baptism. The first is this. I want you to think about baptism and ask yourself, first and foremost, have you been cleansed? in the fount 
Have you been cleansed in the fount? One wrong way to read verse 27 is to read it as saying, water baptism makes you born again. Because in verse number 27, the kind of baptism that Paul refers to ultimately is not a water baptism at all. But a spirit baptism that water baptism only is a symbol of. Only a picture for. As many of you as were baptized into Christ. Read there. As many of you who have been sprinkled with his blood and regenerated by his Holy Spirit. And that is why the Bible employs what we call sacramental union. That's what Paul does here in verse number 27. An association between the sign and the thing signified. The picture and what the picture points you to. But the sign can't get you to the reality in and of itself any more than standing under a sign that says Jacksonville is 35 miles south of here is actually Jacksonville. That sign is saying, go this way and you'll arrive in Jacksonville. So baptism says, go to Jesus and you'll arrive in heaven. But baptism is only a sign, not the thing signified. And yet in scripture, the two are sometimes closely connected because one points you to the reality of the other. Baptism says you who believe have put on Christ, But if you are not saved, hear me now, your baptism is no more for your salvation what circumcision was for the unbelieving Old Testament Jew. It was not a sign of their salvation, but of their condemnation. Baptism, listen now, hear this preacher today, baptism preaches the gospel to you, church. Baptism preaches the gospel to your eyes and to your ears and to your touch. Don't you hear it? As you think about your baptism, don't you hear the gospel proclaimed? Don't you see the gospel displayed before your wondering eyes? Baptism itself says, do not trust in the water, but there is a fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged. Maybe I should say sinners sprinkled <laughs> with that blood. Hallelujah, lose all their guilty stains. That's why God gave baptism to his church. To say that Jesus' blood can wash our filthy souls as white as snow. So really, as I've asked you today to think about baptism, I am not asking you at last, ultimately at the end of the day or end of your life, I am not nearly as concerned over whether or not you have been baptized. I am asking you, your baptism Every baptism you've ever witnessed is asking you, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? And are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? That's what matters most. That's what baptism says to you. Have you been cleansed in the fountain? Second, think about baptism. Ask yourself if you have been confirmed in the faith. Now, on the one hand, I say that it matters less if you have been baptized with water and far more that you have been baptized with the blood of Jesus Christ, yes. But on the other hand, let us not lose sight of the importance of baptism. Have you been confirmed in the faith? 
What I mean to propose to you here is, have you joined yourself to the covenant people of God by baptism? Because that's what water baptism does. Water baptism does not convert you inwardly, but it identifies you certainly outwardly with God's covenant people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, by one spirit, we were baptized into one body. Jesus says in the Great Commission, go and make disciples by baptizing them and then teaching them. Though one is not born again by baptism, they are confirmed as disciples by baptism. Jesus says you make disciples by number one, baptizing, and then number two, teaching them. All subjects who have been baptized are disciples. That is, they are associated with the church in a covenantal relationship. There was a French writer named Barbus who told of a conversation that he overheard in a trench full of frightened soldiers wounded during the First World War. And one of the men was wounded mortally and he knew that he only had a few minutes to live. And he said to the other man, I know that you have lived a very bad lifestyle. Everywhere you go, you're wanted by the police, but there are no convictions against me. My name is clear, so I want you to take my identity. Take my wallet, take my papers, take my good name, take my life, and quickly hand me your papers, and I'll carry all of your crimes and debt and guilt to the grave along with me, and you can have my life of a clean record. And when you were baptized... If you were baptized, you were baptized into the name of the true and living God. As that water descended upon you, so the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was placed upon you. And it's like the Lord was saying, I will, if you trust me, I will take all of your demerit and I'll give you my righteous life. And you can have my reputation. That is why we are called, after all, Christians. Christians. If you have never been baptized, what are you waiting for? You need to identify with God's people. If you Christian parents have never presented your children to be baptized, why would you not lay hold of the claim of God's promises sealed to your children in the sacrament that brings them under the membership of the local church. Uh, more on that next week. But thirdly, ask yourself, have you been consecrated unto faithfulness? Think about your baptism and ask yourself, are you doing what the Puritans would have called improving your baptism? That is, by God's grace, conforming your life to that claim that was placed upon you by the Lord in baptism. Consecrated to serve Him and His purposes, to live your life for His honor and His glory. God claimed to lay hold of you in baptism. He says you are a child now by faith of the true and living God. Ivan the Great was the Tsar of Russia. It's the 15th century he brought together all these warring faction tribes in Russia. And he was courageous as a fighting man, as a general. He was very brilliant. He drove out the enemies called the Tartars. He established peace across the nation that had not been seen for hundreds of years. 
And as he was so busy waging war during his campaigns, he got so caught up that he never married. He never had a family. And his advisors told him, you want to perpetuate your legacy. You want to pass down the, the rulership over Russia, but you need to get a wife, and then you need to have children so that you could do that. And you need to sire someone who can take over the crown. And he agreed, did Ivan. And he said, go and search for me a bride. Go find someone that I can marry. And if you could find a suitable woman, I would be happy to do so. And so they, his advisors searched all over Europe looking for a bride, for Tsar Ivan, until finally, finally they found the one they thought would be perfect. She was the daughter of the king of Greece. She was a princess but there was a snag. She belonged to the Greek Orthodox Church. And Tsar Ivan did not. And so one of the priests advised, if you want to marry the princess of Greece, you've got to get baptized because we will not allow her to marry any unbaptized man. You need to be baptized. And the 400 men who serve as sort of like your secret service, your guardians, they need to be baptized too because we can't have pagans guarding a supposed Christian man after all. Y'all all need to be baptized. Now that presented a hard political dilemma for Tsar Ivan because once baptized, the Greek Orthodox Church taught that they would no longer be allowed to take up arms. They couldn't fight anymore if they submitted to baptism. So they got their heads together and they came up with this creative meeting in the middle of compromise. That is, and the Greeks baptized by immersion, the Greek Orthodox Church, they baptized by immersion in this case. That Tsar Ivan's 400 men could be baptized by immersion. And what they could do was, instead of throwing down their weapons and stopping being soldiers, they could just hold with their right hand or their fighting hand, their sword above the water, and the rest of their body could be baptized, but the sword arm would not be baptized, and therefore they could use that arm to still fight as baptized men. This became known as the unbaptized arms protecting Tsar Ivan. It's like they were saying, weren't they? This much of me is dedicated to the Lord, but this much is still serving myself. Are you living that way today? Do you have baptized or unbaptized eyes? Are your ears baptized? Is your mind baptized or is it unwashed and filthy? Are your hands devoted to serving the Lord? Are your feet devoted to walking in His paths? Are your hands and your eyes and your feet and your whole being a living sacrifice to the God who graciously has washed you with the blood of His only begotten Son? Or are you still holding out areas of an unbaptized life? Think about baptism today and ask yourself, have you been consecrated unto faithfulness? Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And may you write its truths on our hearts. Thank you, O oh Lord, for the cleansing power, the blood of the Son of God, the refreshing, renewing, regenerating resurrecting power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, may we all leave this place today confessing that there is nothing in our hands that we can bring but simply to the cross.
can we cling? Naked, we come to thee for dress, and helpless, we look to thee for grace. We are foul indeed. But we thank you that to the fountain we can fly. Wash us, Savior. Wash us or we die. We praise you and bless you for the beauty of baptism and the privilege of being baptized into your name, most holy. For it is indeed in that name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Brother Kevin. Chosen.